welcome once again to EWTN's Bookmark. I'm Doug Keck, your host. Our guest is Michael Pakalik. The Memoirs of St. Peter is the title, a new translation of the Gospel according to Mark, published by Regnery Gateway, available through our EWTN religious catalog, EWTNRC.com, for all books that are Catholic. And welcome for the first time, having you our pleasure here on Bookmark, Michael, and uh, welcome to our show. Hi, Doug. It's just great to be here. Thanks. And people will remember uh, when they're watching this show that uh, a few months back you were on with Father Mitch talking about this. Now, when somebody first hears the memoirs of St. Peter, they're thinking, is this some, you know, esoteric new document that's been resurrected <laughs> and found that you have? Yes. But then it goes on with the subtitle. So how is, how is this translation a memoir? And what's the difference between a memoir and an autobiography? Well, it's a great title, right? And, um, but it's not my own. It comes from one of the fathers of the church, church Justin Martyr. Yes, I hear he's suing it. you actually for the use of the title. Is that correct? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, I'd, happy, I'd be happy to have anything to do with Justin Martyr. If you want to sue me, that's fine, because I'm, I'm confident he's in heaven. Um, so it just increased my transactions with heaven. That'd be fantastic. But um, yeah, he used that phrase, um, a Greek uh, expression that's been translated in that way. And um, so I've taken it from him. Um, and actually, I, I, I became convinced. In, I originally just set, set out to write a, a new translation and commentary, actually mainly commentary. The translation was the second thought, but everybody loves the, the, the translation. And as I, I went along, I became convinced of the truth of the tradition of the early church, that Mark's gospel was Mark's taking down the preaching of St. Peter. Mark was a kind of interpreter mm -hmm. or a scribe of St. Peter. So I, I so I just took Justin Martyr's uh, phrase. Mm -hmm. and so it it what's the difference between um, a biography or an autobiography and a, and and um, a memoir? A memoir is where you uh, try to convey um, what your experience was like. So um, you know what it was like to be there or to go through it. Whereas an autobiography, I think, is more uh, a matter of fact recounting what happened when and where. Mm -hmm. So it's it's kind of a mark of a memoir that you. You try to you you bring in something like the the inner life of the person who's telling what happened in the past, and you see this in the Gospel of Mark because it's it's so immediate and fresh. It's so clearly a first person, uh, sorry, a, an eyewitness um, account right. uh, that you you wonder well who's who's the person who's the eyewitness here. Now, this book itself, uh, now, are you a, a biblical scholar? That's why you decided to do this. How did you end up involved with this translation? Well, I'm no longer the acting dean. I'm simply a, a professor, and I, I'm happy about that because it gives me more time to write books, and I just finished the book on the Gospel of John, actually. But I'm, um, I'm in the Bush School of Business because the Bush School believes in the importance of the tradition of virtue for business, and so they wanted to have an in-house expert on that tradition in virtue, especially in St. Thomas and Aristotle. And I am an internationally recognized Aristotle expert, three books on Aristotle. I've done a lot of translation of classical philosophy in Aristotle. And, and since I learned ancient Greek um, every day as a Catholic, I've been reading the New Testament in Greek. And now it's you know 30 plus years. And I I, somebody once said, when you read it in Greek, it's like color, and in translations, it's black and white. So I, I, I kind of wanted to see, well, can I convey to someone who doesn't have Greek what it's like when I read the New Testament? Kind of bring, Can I bring that color mm -hmm. 
to the to the black and white. So that's why I, it's basically just the fruit of something that I do anyway, mm-hmm. as as a Catholic who's classically trained scholar. Now you mentioned in the introduction you talk about the Greek Gospels make full sense only if construed as a translation of an original Hebrew version, and then you go to say Hebrew, not Aramaic. Why why is it Hebrew and not Aramaic? What what are we what are you trying to help us understand? Well, in the introduction, that's not really my view. I was reporting a view of Claude Tresmontan, who's right, a, a right. eminent scholar at the Sorbonne, um, now deceased. But um, so you know, most scholars believe that um, the Ara- Aramaic was the original language of the Gospels, and, they, and if there was an oral tradition, it was Aramaic, and these things were all said in Aramaic. And Tresmontan, uh, kind of going against the grain. Right. Uh, wanted to say that among religious Jews, Hebrew was retained as the language of religious discourse. And so actually, they're, they're all versions at one time of Hebrew, um, Hebrew versions of the Gospels. And I don't, I don't sign on to that. I'm not mm-hmm. convinced by Tresmontan's thesis. I just use that as an example of how, um, kind of calling to mind how close the Gospels are to what actually happened. Like right. people in might think in their minds that was wow when it was written down, it was a long time ago, you know, many, many iterations of passing it on and chances of distortion and so on. We're dealing with really the very generation that witnessed the things in the gospel writing them down. I see. You say the unanimous early tradition of the church was that Mark's gospel captured the narrative of the apostle Peter. And according to St. Jerome Mark, the disciple interpreter of Peter wrote a short gospel at the request of the brethren at Rome. Why, why, why is it important for us to understand the relationship between Mark and Peter? Well, I'm not sure it is. I mean, if it, yes and no. I mean, if it were important to regard the Gospel of Mark as the memoirs of St. Peter, then I'm sure the church would have been you know, assured that that received, it received that title. On the other hand, the church has always regarded something gets into the New Testament anyway because apostolic origin and apostolic authority. So it was presumed in this early tradition that, that Mark's gospel was in some sense Peter's preaching, that it was Peter's authority, which was the basis of the authority of the gospel of Mark. So the church has in a certain sense given its stamp of a, you know approval to that idea. Um, so, and then, you know, there's a kind of a pri- a priority of, of um, influence that Marcus had over the other Gospels. Modern scholars say it was because it was written down first, and I don't think one has to hold that. Um, mm-hmm. It could have been, um, you know, it, or, in an oral form first, but um, it has a certain kind, it, no question that it exercised a certain kind of um, an, an influence over the other two synoptic Gospels, so-called, and I think that this was from Peter's authority. Right. Now, the, the actual format of, of the book itself and, the, and how you deal with it in the commentary, why don't you go through how you laid out the 16 chapters and how you laid out each chapter that way? Well, so it, there's first the translation of the entire chapter and then the commentary notes, mm-hmm. which are keyed to particular verses. Now, you'd like those notes to be maybe at the base of the page, so you wouldn't have to flip back and forth as a reader. But um, that's pretty difficult for presses to do. It just increases the bother and the the expense, therefore, of the book. So to keep it at a reasonable expense, the notes were put at the end of each chapter. And you could have read a chapter through 
as a whole so that it wouldn't be broken up and you get a sense of what was going on in that chapter. The chapter verse um, divisions are really relatively late. They're not, they're not, um, you know, they're medieval and later. Um, so they're, they're not, um, uh, they don't derive from apostolic times at all. I, and one might say, well, just read through the whole Bible straight through and you get a better sense of what was intended without any chapter breaks. Mm-hmm. Lots of times chapter breaks are, 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 um, are misleading. Uh, it's clear that something's meant to bridge a chapter. Have you found anything in your work on Mark that you say there would be a situation where you found that to be true, where the breakup you thought did have maybe a, a negative impact on one's understanding? Um, not so much in Mark, I think, but the, in the Gospel of John, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, you also mentioned following each chunk, because you, you kind of do the Gospel, uh, and then you say talk about a chunk. I will comment on particular words and phrases using verse numbers in boldface to indicate what I'm commenting on. So if Scripture is so straightforward that people should be able to understand it, why are there so many commentaries out there? Well, it's not str- The Gospel of Mark is more straightforward than others. Mm-hmm. But, you know, anything that comes from, from God uh, has a lot of depth. And, and, and I think it's not meant to be uh, on its face uh, so easy to understand. Mm-hmm. I think... Um, Again, I'll turn to St. John as a clear example of this, but there are many statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John that I don't think anyone has ever understood Mm -hmm. in the history of the Church. And it's not clear that John understood them or the Apostles understood them and that they were written down by John. And what's also interesting is that our Lord didn't say, I know you don't understand this, let me explain what it means. He would say things and know that people didn't understand them and just leave it at that. And I, this is kind of distinctive, I think, of divine speech. I mean, you find this in the Old Testament, the prophets, and so on. Many, many things that God says to us are hard to understand. So it, it's it's both simple and it's difficult at the same time. Why, why do you think I our would, Lord? Why do you think our Lord decided to do that? Why did you think he do, he didn't just try to make it plainer for people at the time? Because we tend to have contempt for things that we get easily, whereas things that we work hard for and have to struggle to, to get uh, to possess, we value more. So it's better for us. You Other, say we have a progressive idea, repent in order to believe the good news. One would think it would be easy and straightforward to accept good news, but implicit in this phrase is the idea that good news may not appear good. Well, I think if you have to repent, then initially what was presented as good news would not appear to be good, right? There has to be a kind of conversion mm-hmm. away from sin so that the news then looks to be good. Elsewhere here, you talk ex- about that's an example. So that's an example of something which is implicit in the yeah. verse, but it's not so easy to think about that. And it is true, and it's kind of interesting. And then it resonates with the experience of Christians today, because you know, you and I try to evangelize and we present the good news to others, mm-hmm. and we see very clearly that it's not always greeted with a lot of joy, enthusiasm, especially today. Uh, yeah. You, also, you have the famous quote here, uh, the line, fishers of men, and you, you make a point, you say, a fisherman takes fish out of where they belong and into where they do not belong. A fisher of men, in contrast, goes out into inhospitable places to find men where they do not belong and brings them home. Yes. Yeah, I, I don't know if you remember St. Uh, Pope Benedict's uh, homily of installation, is that the correct term, as Pope? But he, when he was talking about the fisherman's ring, he, he preached on that, and he said that the, the early church and the fathers uh, regarded Jesus as a fisherman who picked us up 
out of uh, turbulent and stormy waters and set us on safe and solid ground. So um, it's a different, it's, it's a strange kind of fishing. It's, uh, so you might, if you still want to say, well, it's water, because you have to fish in water, it's turbulent and dangerous water. In chapter 2, uh, 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And you say the Sabbath represents the day in which God rested from his work of creation. God commands that men rest also so that he can more like God who is his good because man is made in the image of God. So is there a problem today over the fact that the Sabbath has kind of been lost? Well, yes and no. So the Jewish Sabbath was the last day of the week, and it was a day of rest. The Christian Sabbath is the first day of the week, and it's a day of a new creation. So rest is not so a distinctive a mark of the Lord's Day as it was of the Jewish Sabbath. It does, it is important for the Lord's Day, but it's a kind of second or third thing. So the first thing of the Lord's Day is worship of the Lord. And the second thing is to kind of prepare way for works of charity and, and time with one's uh, family and neighbors. And, and the third would be uh, rest and restoration um, to serve the first two and then also to prepare for the energy of, of creation because it's the new creation. So, you know, it's kind of there's so many things in the Christian faith that get lost because they're not given um, maybe in the past they were given a kind of um, disproportionate emphasis, and then the, and then it becomes clearer. That, you know, a lot of things in Vatican II are like this, kind of giving the correct place and emphasis of something, but then people react going completely in the opposite direction, don't give it any emphasis at all. Mm -hmm. So um, rest is extremely important for the Lord's Day, but in its place. It's not a predominant value as it was for the Jewish Sabbath. Mm -hmm. Chapter 7, uh, verse 20, that is what defiles man, and it goes on to talk about within the hearts of men, and then talks about fornication and depraved acts. Jesus' list of, of 12 acts that defile roughly correspondent to the Ten Commandments. The first six are outward actions given in the plural, presumably to make clear that he's speaking of definitive acts rather than thoughts alone. So and you talk about mm -hmm. what can be seen and what can't be seen. It seems like some of these things that he mentions as big problems today seem to be downplayed. Do you get that sense? Oh, definitely. I think some of the first ones on the list are downplayed more than others, right? right. That's very interesting. Isn't fornication one of the very first things that he mentions? Absolutely. You can read. Right. Yeah. So, um, so just a kind of a side point um, that now that you've raised it, uh, there is this list of sins in Mark, and you and I have heard it dozens of times and, and, and lots of your viewers. And have, have, I, have we ever stopped to say, well, what is this list? Does it have any logic? What's the reason for the items on this list and the order in which they're given? So that's the kind of thing that I ask about in the commentary. And it's kind of interesting to think about that. I don't believe that our Lord just threw out sins at random. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't do that. Nor would Peter or Mark record them at random. So there's a logic to it. What's the logic? Certainly, as you say, He's looking at things very differently from the way our society does. Today. Chapter 8 uh, talks about calling together the crowd and everyone wants to come, come after me. And then he mentions, let him deny himself. And you say, a first thing is not to be disordered as Satan was. A follower of Jesus must be prepared to sacrifice his own good out of love of God. Then it goes on to let him take up his cross. The cross is promised. Jesus did not say, let him take up a cross if there happens to be one. 
his followers should take up the cross that assuredly will be assigned to him. Yes, interesting. There's a great spiritual classic called The Spiritual Combat. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've read that, but its no. first principle and one of its main teachings is denial of self. And this is another thing that's not really very popular today because we think of happiness as self-actualization. And there's some truth to that, but it's probably better to begin by saying that progress in the life of a Christian is made by some definitive act of self-denial. And uh, you know, our Lord, which our Lord represents you know, so vividly by saying you have to take up your cross, which is a cross as an instrument of crucifixion. And, and you know, it's not that there's um, one, one size fits all. It's, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sure you've encountered this also, people have some suffering and it looks like it's custom made just for this person, sometimes to address a certain um, sin in the past or some kind of good that this per person in particular can, can strive, reach through to. So, so it's just, again, it's interesting that the language of, of our Lord it has that uh, quali qualification and nuance. I mean, you basically I, say, I, I this is slightly different from come after me, which is a principle of ordering. Let him follow me in the context means show your love for me by imitating me, by doing what I do, even when that conflicts with your own good. Right, so come after me as a kind of command, which right. uh, tells us to take a certain place, where let him follow me is a kind of um, space, yeah. our Lord giving us space to show our love for him. Sense, right. Yes, yes. Right, right. And, and that's where he goes on on 35. Anyone who wants to save his soul, this next sentence gives the motivation. Why should anyone choose freely to come after him but to save their soul? Now, that's important because it seems like in, in today's world, I don't know that people think that's at stake. No, in fact, what's so common today is what's called universalism. Mm -hmm. Now, universalism is a view that all of us are saved, uh, no matter what we do. And if that's what you believe, your soul is never at risk. And I, I don't I'm not really sure how anyone can have a sense of sin if you don't believe you're, to me at least, when I commit a sin, I believe my soul is at risk somehow. And, and, and so I act with extreme urgency. Um, so, I, I, it's, it's, well, so universalism is what's really uh, deeply at war with that, and it's very common today. Right. In, in chapter 12, uh, 18 to 27, so the Sadducees come to him, they posed him a question. And then you say, this question is not a trap. The Sadducees pose a stock objection to the doctrine of the resurrection, which they have probably used many times before. Their fault is not deviousness or hypocrisy. And but they do, not, do deny the resurrection. Marx assumes that the Sadducees are less well-known than the Pharisees, and that's why he makes that stipulation about them denying the resurrection. And they also deny the existence of angels and spiritual nature of man. I was interested in why you said that it, it's not a, a function of deviousness or hypocrisy, that you thought they were being straightforward. I think it was a straightforward challenge from their, so to speak, heretical position. Uh, there are all kinds of... Um, challenges that our Lord, Lord God. So what I'm, what I'm doing in that point in the commentary is just asking the reader to be a little bit more refined and draw distinctions and, and you know, ask which of these modes of challenge and, mm -hmm. and um, you know, rejection is really relevant at this point. To, again, kind of sharpen the, 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 the skills of reading the, the scripture. Mm -hmm. So when you sat down to do this, and, and, and people have talked about the fact that there's kind of a freshness to it, an immediacy to it. Uh, was that your intention or is that something that developed as you went along? I think it was something I discovered. 
So I always knew that the Gospel of Mark was kind of rustic, uh, simple language. Everybody knows this. It's not really very elegantly written. Um, but as I worked on the trans translation, I became uh, so impressed by um, the eyewitness character of it and how and it's written also in a kind of um, spoken style. It's as though the person who's writing it down, I believe this is not as though, it's what actually happened. Mark had heard Peter say things out loud so many times that when he wrote it, the same cadences, the same manners of uh, expressing were captured in Mark's writing. So in the translation, I do have that, um, I want to kind of capture a spoken quality uh, to, to Mark's gospel. Now, is it true in, in looking at Mark's gospel in relation to the other gospels that, you know, though it's, it's about Peter's experiences, in a lot of ways it downplays Peter in some ways? I don't think it downplays Peter. Peter's very prominent, and every time he occurs, he's the number, you know, he's the first of the apostles. That's, that's absolutely clear. Uh, he's always named first in lists. He always leads. Um, what happens in the gospel of Mark, and this is noticed by the fathers, I think Jerome is the one who said something like, you know, what tremendous humility of Peter mm -hmm. that he, uh, you know, permitted or caused to be recorded his faults and foibles and foolish mm -hmm. statements and, and, and mistakes uh, to be remembered for centuries, right? right. So we, we see in our society, somebody does something grossly wrong and, and their, you know, their, their, their reputation is revived five years later and everyone forgets it or maybe 10 years later, right? Um, wow. But he knew that this was going to be preserved until the end of time. And he, 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 so it, it's not, it's not that he's downplayed. It's that his, his own shortcomings are preserved by him. Right. And, and that's what in many ways makes the gospels and uh, Mark and others so uh, believable because they, they don't seem whitewashed. They don't seem photoshopped. They don't seem cleaned up or airbrushed. Exactly. You know, they're, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are the understanding or, or reception of the life of Christ on the part of the disciples. John, I think, is different. So we haven't discussed much John, and, and you know, no wonder my book on John is not coming out until next year. Mm -hmm. But I think the gospel of John is more from the point of view of Jesus, and um, it's in, different in that way. So that's why, for example, you might find eight statements about I am in the gospel of John, because it's not a question of the kind of mistakes and misunderstandings in the reception of our Lord or his message at that point. Right. Well, actually, you, you alluded to a book, yeah, Gospel of John, but it's also called, the title is Mary's Voice in the Gospel of John. What's the relationship there? That's right. So the thesis of that book, um, so the thesis of the, the book we're discussing is that um, Mark was the interpreter of Peter. The thesis of the John uh, book is that Mary was um, given, conferred upon, to John from the cross by our Lord around, say, 30 A.D., and lived with him, moved to Ephesus with him, and maybe 60, 65 A.D., uh, she passed from this world, um, the Dormition assumption of Mary. So she lived with John for 30 years, and it's absurd to think that they would not have been of one mind about how to present the life of our Lord to others. Um, so, therefore, there must be some Marian um, influence mm -hmm. in the Gospel of John. So the commentary is concerned with kind of excavating this, finding it, and discussing it. Right. Now, in, in, in writing the book on Mark, you later had a chance. Uh, you're originally from Hicksville, so I have to mention that because I'm a Long Islander, too. Hicksville, Long Island. Hicksville, Hicksville Long Island, Island. And you went to high school Hicksville right down Long the block where I went, uh, at Holy Trinity High yes. School. 
but the Hicksville, uh, com the Hicksville Comets. That was that, our the Comets. We were the Comets. Holy Trinity now, who Titans. Who object to Comets? Yeah, we there the you go. Hey, we, were the, we were the Titans. <laughs> we were the Comets. But you went to the Holy Land. Uh, how did that impact you? And after having written the book. Yes, yeah, so I went. I went there with something called um, uh, YPS, and. Um, it's uh, Barbara Ferreira is the one who founded it. So, uh, you know, I'm grateful that they could take me along as kind of resident expert. And what I found is that the, I, I came back thinking that, and it's silly now in COVID, we're all kind of, um, you know, locked in. But uh, I, I'm strongly enthusiastic about encouraging others to go on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. Like, so you know, if you're going to spend, let's just say, $1,000 to go to, you know, whatever, Hawaii or probably cost more than that. You know, why not go to Jerusalem and the Holy Land instead of Hawaii at least one time? Um, it, it's just this, this, this kind of complement, this kind of uh, shared energy between our imagination. So we read the scripture and we say, read about the synagogue in Capernaum and, uh, you know, kind of the, the demon-possessed man and how our Lord cast the demon out of this man in the synagogue. And then you actually go to Capernaum, you see the excavation of Capernaum, and the, the old synagogue, which is so small, it, it's, it's, it's a kind of a hole in the ground now because you have to excavate down many layers to right. get to it. It's about the size of a large living room. And, but, the but the steps or stairs on which people sat surrounding the room are still there. And, so, and now what you try to imagine, you actually see concretely what it was. And that informs your imagination. That gives material reality to your imagination. And then you can take that back with you. It's like when we think of a place like the Grand Canyon, and we can look at it right. pictures, and we imagine. But you never know like, what you Nothing can't. like being you, there. Yeah, but you stand in front of the uh, Grand Canyon. A lot of us are just going to be able to read your book, and that's all they can do because we're out of time. Thank you so much. Michael Kakalik, right, uh, author of The Memoirs of St. Peter, a new translation of the Gospel according to Mark. Very interesting book by Regnery, available through the EWTN Religious Catalog. EWTNRC.com is a place you can find it. Look for the show coming soon on the network's YouTube channel as well. I'm Doug Keck, thank you for joining us here on Bookmark.